0: I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
1: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints.
2: You see, that's the most bizarre thing about it, right? Is that it's a fiction book, it's a novel. He was not a scientist, he was a novelist. And I remember him saying about this particular book that it was really different to any of the other novels he'd written. So he's written five and published five novels um, and two children's stories and a book on um, creative writing as well. And he, he said, this is a very different book.
1: That's Sarah Shohan, former TV and radio presenter for the BBC, Sky TV, and BBC World Service turned corporate trainer, shares 2020, a novel written by her late husband Nigel Watts, which eerily foresaw everything from a global pandemic to virtual travel in 1995.
0: With everything happening in the world during the global pandemic, Sa'era made the decision to relaunch Nigel's novel, 2020, which at the time received rave reviews from the Times, Sunday Times, and more. It's a book which eerily and accurately predicts a global pandemic that occurs in the year 2020, causing the world to communicate largely through virtual technology, with people wearing masks, a drastic reduction of air travel leading to virtual tourism, and nature fighting back for its survival due to mankind's destruction of our planet. Tragically, Nigel took his own life in 1999, some four years after the publication of his novel. Seato's journey from losing Nigel to dealing with her grief by coming to America to discover healing through horses, and now to relaunching 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, a novel in which Nigel somehow uncannily predicted our future while providing some sadly needed wisdom to us, is a powerful story on so many levels that we hope it will touch you as much as it did us.
1: Here's our conversation with Syara Shohan.
0: Yeah, I've been so excited to to talk to you because our stories are so similar um, in how our passions actually caught up with us. That's what passions do, right? So, for example, at the age of five, I knew that I was going to move to London. And I also knew that travel would have some presence in my life. I didn't know what shape that would take. And you know, post law school, I we're lawyers as well, but travel passion caught up with me and things have uh, run its course, but when we started, I wanted to be the Oprah in the travel space.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you heard <have> then. <been. laughs>
0: I did. I did. And and so I want to ask you about your story and how you made the jump from anthropology to your very stellar career at the BBC and to this place where you are now.
2: That's a great question. I love it. I wanted to say, doesn't everybody want to be Oprah? (laughs) Um, You know, well, basically, it's really interesting. You you mentioned the age five, Tonya, because when I was around that age, I lived with my parents and they had a reel-to-reel tape recorder. I don't know if you remember, they were those Mm old-fashioned, you know, reel-to-reel tape recorders, and we had a microphone. And when my parents used to have people come for dinner, I used to take the microphone and try and interview everybody, you know? Like, I really was curious, actually, to find out about people. But really, I wanted to be like a broadcaster stroke presenter. And on my mother's side of the family, the maternal family, There were seven siblings and four of them were broadcasters in India and also actually in Pakistan as well. I think it must have just been in my blood. But then I kind of forgot about it, as you do and, you know, your life goes in different directions. So, as you said, I studied anthropology at at university. And because I was really curious to find out, uh, really similar to you in terms of mm. you know, different societies and cultures around the world. And, you know, we're all sharing this planet, but we share it so differently. And, and we have such a different kind of perception of what it is to live in our world. And, you know, I was just very curious again to, to learn more about beyond, you know, Western culture in London, basically. I'm also a real traveler. So it really fit for me to do that degree. But it was actually about, I don't know, maybe two or three years after I graduated and I was doing, I was working in different places and and I just thought, actually, what is it I really, really want to do? And I just kind of let it go as an idea and I thought, I'm just going to wait and see what shows up. And one day I was watching TV and this woman was interviewing this guest on TV. And I thought, that's what I want to do and basically I had no journalism qualifications no experience I didn't really know anyone in the business which is three kind of prerequisites to get in Um, it's so competitive so somebody advised me they just said look start wherever you can just try and get in Um, maybe even if you get into production so my first job I actually got a job as a chauffeur for the BBC (laughs) Mm. Oh, my. (laughs) That was my first job on a show. I had to ferry celebrities to and from this uh, site where they were filming a a show. And that was the best job, actually, because what it meant was I could actually ask these celebrities how they got ahead. I got advice. And the next thing you know, I'm working in production. And then from there, I just, you know, it wasn't long before I transitioned to in front of the camera.
1: Wow. (laughs)
2: Determination. Though. I'm yes. sorry, sorry, it's determination. Serious. Yes. I did not give up. Um, I shared it on another interview recently. I got a. I wrote to Ruby Wax because she's one of my, also one of my role models, and um, she wrote back and said, "Knock down every door you can until somebody lets you in," and that's exactly what I did. So, so for those in the U.S. who don't know who Ruby Wax is. Well, she's actually... Okay, so she is an American and uh, she's lived in the UK... I guess a very long time if you guys don't really know about her, but she is a, you know, she's a broadcaster, a TV presenter, and so much more. She does a lot around mental health as well. Mm. Um, she's incredibly real and authentic. And I really, I rate her a lot. She was a comedian. I think that's how she started out. But obviously, you know, she's transitioned. And so that's, yeah, that's Ruby Wax. Is, is, she's American, but she lives here. So yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Mm. Sarah, your late husband wrote a book in 1995 called 2020, a book you recently relaunched that eerily predicted many of the current events that the entire world is experiencing, particularly this pandemic. How did your late husband have the foresight at that time, 20 years ago, to predict the events, albeit in a fiction book, that we're experiencing today?
2: You see, that's the most bizarre thing about it, right, is that it's a fiction book. It's a novel. He was not a scientist. He was a novelist. And I remember him saying about this particular book that it was really different to any of the other novels he'd written. So he's written five and published five novels um, and two children's stories and a book on um, creative writing as well. And he, he said, this is a very different book. You know, that is such a good question that I'm afraid I cannot fully 100% answer. Mm. How does anyone know the workings of something so bizarre, right? Um, somebody recently said it's almost like he was channeling something. Mm. The way I like to see it is that he was an incredibly intuitive and spiritual man. Mm-hmm. And on some level, as an artist, I think artists have almost like one foot here in the kind of real world, if you like, and another foot somewhere else. You know, it's like they can plumb the depths of something that most of us don't necessarily always stop to take time to see or perceive or feel. And so I sense that he was in another I don't wanna say another realm because that just sounds weird, but there is a different space that I think artists occupy. And maybe in that space, something was talking to him. I mean, I remember he, for his fourth novel, We All Live in a House Called Innocence, he was actually, he composed it. All the ideas came to him when he was on a meditation retreat in India. And he went and he, was retreat, he retreated into the mountains in Dharamsala. And he was there for 10 days on his own and in a hut, basically. And he said that all of a sudden he hadn't planned it, but all these characters were coming to his mind and he didn't have his laptop. He didn't have much paper. So he scribbled what was coming to him. And then that became his fourth novel. So I, that's, you know, I think that's what happens. They just tune in to something.
0: Wow, you know you mentioned India, and um, that 's a country I really enjoyed uh, visiting a couple of years ago and and I remember you said something about Nigel felt in some ways that he was more Indian than you are because the country just really spoke to him it um, i mean and, and I, I get it having having been there there 's just it's something i can 't articulate. Um, But so, you know, we live in the travel space. That's where Ian and I live. And one of the things that really stuck out, speaking of travel, um, was a prediction Nigel made about tourism and just tourism going, you know, people not being able to travel and virtual Travel becoming a reality for
2: many. Yeah, he called it virtual tourism, and basically in the book. And uh, it's so bizarre, isn't it? Because we're all facing massive restrictions on our travel now due to the pandemic, and that's exactly why the virtual tourism in the book is being designed because people have a limit on travel. So if you yeah. don't mind, I'd love to actually read a couple of just a quote on that um, yes. from the book because it's so bizarre how kind of accurate it, it actually is.
0: Can, can you um, also show us a cover of the book because that's on. also eerie as well.
2: Yes. So that's 2020 by Nigel Watson. You can see, the mask right yes. um and uh in the in the reflection of the the sunglasses there is the coggy and i'll talk about the coggy in a while but basically it's to depict that actually that's the virtual program the coggy tribe that's the cover that arthur billington designed who i published this book with and i love it i just think it's a great design it's just um, so spot on right So spot on. Absolutely. So yes, um, completely. So in terms of travel, um, you know, there's a couple of quotes, actually. One is, tourism had been ruining what little there was left of natural habitats. People had a right to recreation and they had a right to know the world they lived in. What better way than creating an electronic replica, saving the real thing to recover? I mean, doesn't that make sense? But but he wrote that 25 years ago when climate change was on the map, but not to the extent that it is now. There's another really interesting phrase he uses, which is a flesh to flesh. So Julia is the anthropologist who's working on the virtual program. She's asked to go to America. And that's unusual in the book, in the book. yes, she's one of the characters. And she says, She was happy to do the work, but leave home, go to the States, because she's based in the UK. She couldn't see the point of a flesh to flesh with the American team. But as Paul, her husband, pointed out, this was a $2 billion project. Teleconference security was too easily breached with that kind of money at stake. The British embassy advised her against it. The plague was far more widespread in North American cities than anywhere in Britain.
0: Oh, my gosh. Another
2: spot on prediction. Right. And then wait for this one, because this is the weird. This is I say the weirdest. They're all pretty weird. In the poor districts, there was nothing to prevent its spread. Most of the houses were undefended and short of working and sleeping in a mask. Contagion was inevitable. He had heard rumors that giant lime pits had been dug outside D.C. and New York to deal with the mounting number of plague deaths. Mm. I mean, you know, we had the news a few months ago that in New York, they were digging exactly. mass graves, right? So uncomfortable reading. Yeah, yeah,
0: oh my gosh. Mm. It, you know, we, we watched uh, recently the movie Contagion and yeah. I thought, holy cow, how on earth could somebody come up, you know, with this scenario? And Nigel's book even predates that movie. I know. I know.
2: Decade. Well, it's funny you say that because I was, um, you know, I, we're looking, I mean, the very first thing when I started reading the book, at the, you know, when, the, when lockdown happened, and I was rereading it and going, oh my gosh, this would make just such a great movie. And in his PhD, he actually wrote, because he wrote it as part of his PhD, for his PhD. And he said he actually wrote it as a movie and so that's my ambition next is now we've published the book to get it made into a movie for sure because it makes such a great movie
0: yes
1: yes Everybody. yes it does with everything that's going on with covid and how our lives have been placed on hold we can't travel the planets had some time to recover from us burning fuels for traveling whether it's by car or plane And I'm curious what you think Nigel would have said about this period where we've essentially reset the planet's environment to some degree. Yeah.
2: You know, that's a really good question and a really good, I I love that question because basically Nigel's whole mission, I believe what in this book, one of, you know, the biggest part of this book for me anyway, was his message of what we're doing to the planet and how we actually really need to watch what we're doing. Because of course, 25 years ago, there was still a chance to save the destruction, let's say. There was still a chance to reverse. I'm not a climate expert, but I'm not sure we have as much of a chance as we did 25 years ago to reverse the damage. So I feel and sense that he would have been, let's say, grateful, as I am, as many of us are, that nature is coming back. I mean, I live right under the flight path in the UK to not have those planes flying over. I've never seen a sky so blue to hear. And also to see wildlife that you wouldn't normally see or hear, you know, just the quietness, just it, it, I I think he would have been absolutely grateful as, as many of us are. And that sounds really i hope that doesn't sound inappropriate given we are going through the pandemic but it has given the planet a chance to to pause and to breathe and and actually i do think that we're so not in control (laughs) you know we're so not in control and the planet is and this was the big message of of the coggy you know it's like the planet will have her way if we don't stop abusing her
1: This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers.
0: Here's more of our conversation with British radio and television broadcaster, Sa'era Shohan, as we discuss the relaunch of 2020, a novel by her late husband, Nigel Watts, that anticipated our future nearly three decades ago.
2: Who, who are the, the Coggy? The Coggy. So the Cogi are an Amazonian tribe in Colombia that came to prominence in 1990 by a documentary filmmaker called Alan Herrera. And the coggies message is basically they came out of hiding, if you like, to communicate the message that if we carry on the way we are with the planet, the planet will get sick. They refer to themselves as the guardians of Mother Earth and they refer to themselves as elder brother and they refer to us as younger brother. Basically, they came out of hiding to, to speak to the world, to give the message that we need to stop doing what we're doing. And Alan Herrera, um, he made that documentary, as I say, in 1990. And Nigel, and he wrote a book called The Heart of the World on the Coggy. And Nigel used a lot of his work, obviously by his permission, and we have mentioned in the book the Tyrona trust who are the trust for the coggy and basically you know they what they're saying is is happening there is another quote which if you don't mind you know <laughs> reading um i mean it's a it's more of a sort of a coggy warning really talking about the heating up of the planet and they say when they kill all the elder brothers then they too will be finished we will all be finished if that happened and all the mamas died and there was no one doing our work the rain wouldn't fall from the sky it would get hotter and hotter from the sky and the trees wouldn't grow and the crops wouldn't grow so we're heating up and that's what they basically said you know and that's they say that it's their job to keep the balance of the planet. So Nigel uses the COGI in the virtual program, the virtual reality program in the book as a teaching tool to test, you know, virtual tourism, but at the same time to teach, you know, what we need to learn,
1: really. Mm. We know you spent some time in the United States as well. And for our audience based here, talk to us about your experience here, how that was transformative and how that um, actually changed changed your life and changed your direction to some degree,
2: Nigel. For your viewers, you know who who obviously we haven't talked about it, but Nigel very very tragically took his life in 1999, four years after this book was originally published, and he had written another novel that got published on the life of Rumi, the Sufi poet Rumi, and and then he took his life. And that's been a real journey and uh, obviously and, and continues to be some 20 years after he died. And one of the things that I decided to do, and it wasn't really kind of a, a conscious decision, but it was one of those things where, you know, how life just takes you and you just go with it and it, something happens. And I was on a road trip through, well, we were doing the Four Corners and we were driving through Arizona. And it was a similar trip that Nigel and I had done uh, two months before he took his life, which was quite strange. So I went on this trip with a girlfriend of mine and um, we went and we did this course in, we, we did like a week, week long course in Arizona that a friend of mine had recommended. And part of that course was equine therapy, which is basically working with horses. It was really powerful. My goodness. It was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. And I said to the facilitator, her name's Laura, she has this ranch in Tucson. And I said to her, I am fascinated by this and I would like to learn equine therapy. This is what I want to do. And um, very long story short, literally that was in the August, in the January of the following year, I was on a plane ready to start my new life in Tucson, Arizona. Mm -hmm. I moved to a horse ranch and um, started studying equine therapy. The reason I talk about Nigel taking his life was because in answer to your question, Ian, it was one of the most healing experiences for me to just get out of town, basically. Mm -hmm. Get out of the place that reminded me of him. It was so different. I mean, really, the desert. Compared to London, <laughs> you can't get more different. And uh, and it was what I needed. And I was there for two years and it was very healing for me on many levels, particularly with the horses and the people I met and the landscape. And since then, I mean, I have obviously moved back to the UK, but I go back or have gone back pretty much every year because it's like my spiritual home, Tucson. I, I just love it. Oh. Um, I'm missing it right now.
0: But you know and I have to show it's another thing we have in common so the other passion that hasn't caught up with me precisely is horses. I grew huh? up I grew up with horses and and if we had money we'd have a we we'd have a We'd have a couple right now, but.
2: Oh, amazing. They are such special creatures, really. They're just, there's just something
0: so majestic and beautiful and graceful and calming, really calming.
2: calming. Oh. Very calming. And they're very, very in the moment. So yes. they're, they're, that's why they're so great for therapy if you have a therapy horse, because they can really be where you're at and if you're inauthentic in any way they pick it up and they just they withdraw and the more you try to kind right. of get their attention the less they you know but then when you let go of that they'll come to you that's yes. what's amazing you know so yeah
0: kind of like cats and we have one of those too
2: <laughs> right like, I don't I'm, I'm allergic to cats unfortunately so oh I'm sorry love
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's <fine. laughs> So you you mentioned that Arizona, you know, Tucson, Arizona was kind of a spiritual home. And that was actually my next question for you is if there's a country or a place that you've identified as your soul country, like a place where you feel at home. Is it Arizona?
2: It is. It's not India. (laughs) It (laughs) is Nigel's spiritual home. Arizona's mine. (laughs) <laughs> actually i have an american friend and she um she's originally from seattle but she's lived here a very long time and she a bit like nigel used to say to me i'm more indian than you she used she often says you're more american than me you know <laughs> i do i i don't know it's weird isn't it like do we have past lives in these countries I mean honestly the connection I feel when I was um, oh in my early 20s and I had not done um, a big sort of you know trip I hadn't gone traveling yet and in my early 20s I was like you know what I want to go traveling and um, I'd met Nigel but we weren't married and the place I chose was America for three months I backpacked around the states I absolutely loved it yeah I mean it's it's and you know it's really interesting because the first time I lived there in um, 2007, Obama, um, t- t- recent then he got inaugurated just when I had, I arrived I think, um, oh gosh, I arrived in the January mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, I saw his inauguration on TV with friends there and then I moved back to the US um, in 2017, in February 2017 and oh. I saw Trump being inaugurated which is quite a different experience i have to say. <laughs> yeah.
0: So. We were there for the first one for for Obama in the freezing blistering cold. We were we were there mm-hmm. cuddled up
2: <laughs> with everybody else but Don't um missed that, right? You're in that you're in Washington so you yeah. couldn't that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's history. So hopefully we'll see what uh, what awaits us.
1: In we the will. <laughs> As we were preparing for today with you, uh, we learned that Queen Elizabeth was once your landlady. Uh, how did that come to be?
2: That just, I just love it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> she, she kind of was, it's bizarre. So a year after Nigel died, I, I had been living with friends for a year after he died and then I was ready to kind of get my own place. And I was looking for places. And in those days, you didn't really, I didn't use the internet to find a place to live. I used just a paper, like the local paper. There was a, you know, the property pages at the back of this newspaper. And there was a beautiful picture of this place that I just thought, wow, this looks really lovely. And it wasn't far from where I was living. It was in a place called Hampton Court. So if any of your viewers have heard of Hampton Court Palace, it was right there. And so I phoned the agent arranged to meet him, turned up at this place. It was in a beautiful courtyard of, of very old properties. This is this is gorgeous. I never knew this was here. Um, <laughs> you know, cobbled, all cobbles, everything. It was really historic. Anyway, the agent arrived, he showed me around this apartment. It was beautiful inside and you know my friends were like this is the first time you'll be living on your own since Nigel died you need to find somewhere that you feel really happy in and when I looked around this apartment I felt really happy and I thought this is perfect so I said to the agent yes please I'd like to take it and he said are you sure and I said well yes I'm sure why (laughs) and he said because you have a rather unusual landlady (laughs) I was like Who? And um, (laughs) he said, well, it's actually Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II. And I said, excuse me? Run that (laughs) baggy again? And um, basically, uh, it it was the first property that was rented out commercially in this area. All the other properties were housed by uh, royal household staff. So I had the Queen's head chef, Lionel his name was, living above me and basically you know, they were all grace and favor properties. So most of the staff were retired. So they get these properties when they retire. But this apartment, my apartment, was the only one that they let out commercially. And so I was the only kind of non-royal household person there. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I, and I kept the contract and it, and you know, it has landlord, Sir Michael, I can't remember the last name I'm going to have to check on behalf of, her Mm. royal highness Um, my name you know and that was our contract with a little royal red royal seal on it of wax you know so that's just like yeah that's how I got to live there that was amazing
0: how cool is that
2: yeah I got to tell you a funny story actually about that which is one night I came home it was very very late at night I'd been out with friends and I was hungry so I put some toast on the grill and um, basically burnt the toast and the Mm -hmm. fire alarms went off well you can imagine there were eight fire trucks that arrived within about five six seven minutes of of the alarms going off because of course the Hampton Court Palace fire that happened many years ago they're really on high alert I felt I just felt terrible because I had left the the toast in the grill it was burning I didn't realize and yeah
0: (laughs) well you weren't evicted so that's 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 a good thing
2: (laughs) no thankfully I wasn't
1: (laughs)
0: So yeah. as we, as we wrap up, um, I, we'd love to ask you one of our favorite questions. If you could choose anyone to sit next to on a long haul flight, when we can travel again, past or present, who might that be and
2: why? Wow. Past or present. Oh, that's such an unfair question. Cause there's about 10. So I, Personally, we were talking about him just a minute ago. For me, right now, it would be Obama. Yeah, I'd like to sit next to him on a long-haul flight because I, yeah, he has a lot to teach us.
0: Yes. And you'd probably get Michelle too. So you'd get a two Yay!
2: Two for one. <laughs> no, brilliant. That would be great. Yes. I, I I really rate her as well. So yes, it would definitely it would definitely be those two for sure.
0: Oh uh, so Anna, I know there's so much more I want to ask you and, and talk to you about. And we'd love to just have you come back and we can just talk about travel, you know, something we were both passionate about and in you know more about the Kogi. I mean, there's so many stories. This isn't enough time. Well,
2: we need I know, more time. I know. There's
0: so many stories. You know, we recently watched that movie *Contagion*. Everyone else had seen it before, but we only just watched it. And remember how shocked we were to see how a Hollywood movie and Hollywood writers could predict exactly what we're living through today. And and now we learn Nigel's book, written in 1995, 2020, almost 30 years ago, has spot-on predicted what we are living through today, including the virtual travel that many of us have had to experience.
1: Well, one of the powers of movie telling and storytelling from a fictionalized standpoint is that it allows the writer or two, and and the audience for that matter, to explore these topics, uh, perhaps at a time when our minds may not be open to the realities of things as they might turn out to be, and and that's kind of how I feel about 2020 and Contagion. And the conversation that we had with Sahara was so powerful on so many different levels, clearly 2020 and its, its prescient nature about what we're going through today, but also her journey from tragedy to recovery to really being able to uh, come through so much, and now the world is going through so much, uh, she offers up tons of wisdom for us to make the best out of these troubling and difficult times.
0: Yeah, you know she she is my girl crush right now, and uh, the person who introduced us, who is like a sister to me, uh, Sangita Waldron, told me that she knew Saara and I when we would when we would talk that there would be magic, and certainly I felt that this was a very uh, powerful interview, and and I we have a new friend <laughs> and I love her to death. And I think one of the, the, the coolest things I, uh, you know, we learned about her during this interview was that Queen Elizabeth was her landlord. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, she, she caused, uh she caused the fire trucks to, uh to come to the, the flat where that, where she was renting. Um. So, and, and, Queen Elizabeth didn't evict her. But yes, uh, certainly this is a a very powerful and insightful story. And I look forward to reading uh, the book 2020. In closing, we want to leave you with a passage from Nigel Watt. In the words of our guest, his wife, Sa'ada Shohan.
2: He says, I believe the consequences are clear enough. Consider yourself a bag of bones, separate from your environment, and you will have the moral immunity to treat the world and its contents as things. Taken to its extreme, we have alienation and its concomitant fallout, which is crime, neurosis, and the trashing of the environment. However, see yourself as a leaf from a tree, but essentially connected natural harmony will result. We're Tanya
0: and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are honoured that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World
2: Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.